0: Hello,
1: everyone. Welcome back. A positive jam. Season two, episode four, Banging Camp. I'm Sean Westfall, the host of this season. Joining me, as usual, Mike Taylor. Hi! There we go. And Dan Schwartzman. Say hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. (laughs) Hi, there we go. So, Banging Camp. Mike's a little punchy today, so he's but but he's going to be awesome today. We 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 have faith in Mike today. This camp is banging. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they came up with the title. That teases up right there. I think that's pretty much. I guess my question regarding "Banging Camp" is: What function does this song perform in the narrative? And I guess it's some of it's pretty clear, but I'm just guess I'm wondering if if either of you have any thoughts about how the song functions in this sort of narrative. Or if you don't like that question, for God's sakes, ignore it and answer the question you want to answer. By the way, I used to work at Roll Call and occasionally the people who worked at Roll Call would be be talking heads on like CNN or whatever. And one of the pieces of advice that Jim Glassman, who was the editor of Roll Call would say is, whenever you go do one of these standups, don't answer the question you're asked answer the question you want to answer. So let me give you Jim Laffman's advice. Answer the question you want to answer. If you don't like that question, answer the question you want to answer.
2: The question I want to answer is that it reminds, it's track four reminds me very much of track four on Almost Killed Me. There's nothing wrong about this song, but it doesn't excite me the same way that the first three tracks do. It's not, it's a, it's right. like a solid album track.
3: That's most people are DJs, right? Most people are DJs.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's just like it's kind of crunchy. I I remember using that word last time, crunchy guitars. It's well-constructed. It's got good melodies. It's got a lot of interesting things going on. At the same time, just never hits into a higher gear for me, which is interesting because I think I have not done the, you know, I imagine that I will learn about the full narrative as we analyze the songs like I haven't pieced them to, in my head. So I don't remember if there's another where the chronology is or if there's a twist where things go downhill. But, you know, this is. More climactic from the narrative sense, I would think, as the as a baptism or at least as a, st- you know, a trial baptism or something. And so uh, it seems more important to the narrative than it does. As a great song, it's a fun song. There's some good lines. There's some good stuff going on, but it's not quite hold steady in fifth gear, cruising down the highway.
0: Right, right, right. Mike, you have any thoughts? I think your question about how it functions in the narrative—it's
3: where Holly and I would guess Gideon first meet each other. So. It's kind of got the... This is like the collision of these two major characters and their introduction to each other. It's a song about love and what, what love is. One thing I noticed about it tangentially is that there are only a few songs where, especially in the early Hold study catalog, where there's like a straightforward direct thesis statement. Like... So that jumps out at me too. I think it's like one of the most straight ahead sort of philosophical arguments or something like this is a, there's a statement of this is what I believe. I believe there are strings attached to every single lover. So maybe that's the other function it plays is it kind of gives us something a little bit more tangible to grab onto in terms of. There's all this swirling chaos and people who are lost. And then there's this one sort of more solid idea to sort of ground everything that's happening throughout the album to this type of idea that love is one of the key forces that matters the most, despite, despite
0: everything else. Yeah. So do you think the song's about love, though? I think it's about the nature of, well, I think that line is about love. Yes. The song,
3: what's the song about? I think it's, I think it's a, um, I think it's a plot driven song where these two people meet each other and I don't, I, is the song about love? No, but that line is about love. And that's like, and that, and it's a refrain line. So there.
1: (laughs) So this isn't one of the songs that that I bump up against. I, I like this song, but it's not. You're right. It's not like my definitely not my favorite song. But what what I do like about this song lyrically, and again, this is where my my, my concentrate all my energies is how much it corresponds to. And again, we can do the sort of thing with the wasteland here.
2: Wasted by the wasteland.
1: If if I were to pick. Not every song on Separation Sunday, at least in my opinion, tracks perfectly to the arc of the wasteland. But this is one of the songs that, like, if I were had to pick the, the these, you know, five or six that do, this is definitely one of the songs that it does. Because if you go into Canto three of the Wasteland, it starts out, Canto three is called the Fire Sermon. And basically the imagery is all riverbank imagery, the desiccation and waste that appears on a riverbank. And if you'll indulge me, I'll try to read some of these stuff, and I'll make it real quick. I promise I won't read all of the wasteland to you. Wait a minute. No, I can't actually promise that. But no, I'll I'll do my best. Here's Canto Three of the Wasteland Fire Sermon. The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames run softly till I end my song. And then there's a few more lines that talk about the river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. Again, Elliot's saying that the river bank no longer bears this, but it once did, meaning we're seeing, they're seeing it like the night after. And then there's this imagery in the next verse, a rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy belly on the bank while I was fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening, round behind the gas house. And then more more imagery, white bodies naked on the low damp ground and bones cast in a little low dry garret, rattled by the rat's foot only year to year. So this is how Canto 3 starts out. And what we later discover in this Canto is a sexual encounter. We have a male figure and a female figure, both unnamed. We don't know their names. But they're described in the same sort of manner and way that the river is described, spiritually bereft, desiccated. And the physical encounter is a quasi-violation in that this woman is going to be a victim of this man. Again, she seems rather aloof, and, and there's language and imagery that talks about how she feels afterward. But, and she seems rather aloof and uncaring about, about it afterward, as if it's just something that, you know, it's just another banal occurrence in her life. Of all the songs on this album that correspond to my theory and my thesis that it's an analog of the wasteland, this is one of them because we see, we meet Holly at the beginning talking about love and what she ends up doing is being on the river and the imagery around the river is dark. Holly has her spirituality across to ward them all off. But yeah, she meets this person, this sort of charismatic person who quote unquote, and I'll put that in scare quote, baptizes her. But it seems more like it's an introduction to drugs and drug culture and what happened and and the kind of things, the nature of the kinds of things that happened down on the river than it is about, about love. Because we see her afterward. You know, I saw her at the party pit. Yeah, she was shaky, but still trying to shake it. Half naked and three quarters wasted. She was completely alone. So per my theory, <laughs> this has a lot, this album has a lot to do with the wasteland. Yeah, this is one of those. And again, it, melodically, it's it's not like one of their best songs, but lyrically, there's a lot going on here. And I guess it's sort of, that's why it sort of attracts for me. No, that was awesome.
2: I agree. The thing to me, when you turn the question to Mike about what is this? Is this about love? And then how you just described it to me, it's, again, showing the thin line between the revelation one feels from, from religious experience, religious revelation, and drug culture and drug revelation. We talked about that. I think Mike made the point on Cat on the Creeping Things about born again as a Stepping stone to becoming even more ecstatic in your experience, and that's that's sort of here again the thin line and the irony in her wearing a cross to ward them off, and then getting baptized. And so, yeah, I think just to as a compliment to what you just said with the ties to the wasteland.
1: Yeah, I I think if it is a baptism, it's a really really dark baptism, and I think it's more of a baptism into this sort of darker culture that occurs than anything else this is this is where she's gonna fall this is where holly's gonna be if she is redeemed and and, you know as the album progresses this is where she takes the plunge uh and again that's what baptism is is involves is taking the plunge uh, these lines you could read it a number of ways but i read them very dark i saw him at the riverbank he was breaking bread and giving thanks with crosses made of pipes and planks leaned up against the nitrous tanks Breaking bread and giving thanks—you, you, you know—there are multiple ways to read that. I see him. Here's the perverse way I read this: giving thanks, of course, down on your knees. But he could also be performing a sex act to try to score. Crosses made of pipes and planks—that we have, you know, pipes and planks could be literal, you know, pipes and, and sort of the waste that you might find on riverbanks but they can also be pipes for ingesting drugs and things like that. So it's dark and foreboding and the lyrics don't really correspond to the sort of upbeat way the, the, the melody in the song operates. It's almost Steely Dan-esque where, you know, you hear the sort of like chirpy quasi jazz, soft jazz melody. And the, you know, the lyrics are about some really dark shit. So yeah, I've gone on way too long.
3: Yeah. I think what you're saying is really compelling. I thought that. For some reason, I always thought this song was a little less serious than that. Maybe it's the title, Banging Camp, which always made me think of, like, American Pie and Band Camp. And
1: Oh, and this one time, at Band Camp, I stuck a flute in my
2: pussy.
3: (coughs) But now the way Sean's describing it, it's a camp like an encampment, and it's, like, a dangerous place. And the banging is not, like, fun banging. It's, like, gross, bad... Unpleasant banging.
1: And it, it's it, even the phrase, even the word banging, bang. I mean, there are multiple ways to read that. There's a pejorative sexual way. But William Burroughs in Naked Lunch and throughout his literature talks about injecting heroin as bang. I need a bang, that kind of thing. So that's another way to read it. I could go on all day, kids. I got I got a million of them. I got a million well, of them.
3: Well, that's what when you mentioned breaking bread and giving thanks, that's what I, made me think of someone like cooking up a shot as like right. a ritual, you know, ritualistic type of thing. But yeah, I think you're kind of bringing me around, Sean, that this I always thought that for that reason, that it had that kind of humorous sort of overtone in the title that I, there was something a little bit more disposable about this. But when I read it the way that you're talking about it comes to life in a sort of different way for me. It connects the, I saw this as like more disjointed lyrically because you have the people meeting each other and falling in love and then you have great white sharks, killer whales, that like it only sort of all makes sense together if you decide that the banging camp is this sort of more dangerous, scary place as opposed to like a, a summer camp where... People make sort of more innocent sexual discovery or something like that, which is like, was my reading.
2: Yeah, I think you guys are right. I think when you read about the dialogue, won't you wade into the water with me? You know, there's camps down by the banks of the river. And then the I went to school in Massachusetts. I liked to party on the problem blocks, which I'll come back to later. These are characters, again, kind of from humdrum, clever kids sort of backgrounds who are wading into darker stuff. I think that's, that's all quite compelling. And it's just funny how in the, the Hold Steady's world or in Craig Finn's lyrical world, we can listen to a song with a verse about great white sharks, the kind of big black cars, and killer whales, meaning they will not until they killed him. Like, oh my right. God, this is a lighter song. This is like one of the, right, you know, right, right. this is happy song
3: right those i mean that's like some of the funniest stuff i think it's just
2: incredible no the killer killer whales is one of the lines that stands out the sharks and the black and tans and mike and i were chatting about this before we got on are both callbacks to lifter pullers touch my stuff off bsm fiasco's I mean, I think sharks probably comes up more often, but we're trying to nail down where the black and the tans, which I think is a reference to a type of drink in Ireland, Guinness and another beer. But also I think there are like militia groups or...
1: Right. Or some... Quasi-fascist militias. Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, some some dark shit going on here.
2: (laughs) Right. And that's... And Lifter Puller, of course, was a much more unambiguously darker lyrical and musical milieu whereas the hold steady the music here is is pretty affirmative because if you we haven't talked about the music yet but the the bridge is kind of it doesn't soar again but you've got the the way the guitar is kind of they are building right and they are they do sound somewhat triumphant and you even have I forget if last week I said that Little Hood Rat Friend was the only song with a backing vocal, but this has a backing vocal too. I don't know if it's Nicole Wills again or if it's somebody else, but just the little la la las. Like those are, and we've pointed time again, the Hold Steady likes to draw stylistic irony between melody and lyrics. And that seems to be what's happening here. So they slip one by, they slip one right by you, catch you looking.
1: One of my favorite moments musically is, and I forget what the musical name for it, in, in poetry, it's called a caesura, where the, you know, there's a complete stop, silence, right? Where, like, with that verse where, obviously, the baptism is taking place, and, and he said, take a hit, hold your breath, and I'll dunk your head. Then when you wake up again, you'll be high as hell and born again. And then, psh, Silence. Father. And and then, you know, then he picks up with, yeah, there's strings attached to every single lover. I love that moment because I think it it sort of it basically the song is saying there's nothing lyrically or musically that can communicate the experience of baptism by fire, baptism by drugs, baptism by I love that moment. I think it's just a great it's not like really a great moment, it's a smart moment. It's just so it just shows how smart musically this band is on top of lyrically. So, yeah.
2: I mean, I think I'm trying to double check. For Mata is how that looks on sheet music. You'll have a pause Uh and it can be indeterminate length. I'm trying to remember, obviously, the song that's coming to mind, the Beach Boys did it on a couple songs, including Good Vibrations, where they stuck in these big pause. Or the previous song before Good Vibrations was the little girl i once knew i think it was it was it was like a single before as they were ascending
0: Look out,
2: but yeah that idea of putting in a coda uh, it's not a coda but a period a space yeah it's it's an, it's a powerful effect
1: springsteen does it or at least versions of springsteen's fire with that pause between hot Stays true Pause Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So it happens a lot in cool songs.
3: So musically, I noticed watching on YouTube that the guitar is, I don't know, I'm obsessed with upstrums. And this is the guitar parts are on upstrums if you watch Tad playing. And I think if you you can hear the drum hits and then the chord hits, so it's like ba na ba na which um, creates a kind of off-kilter type of feeling or something. I think it's sort of the bounciness or a less elasticity feeling of the song. It's also very simple. It's what B, E, C sharp, something like that. It's three chords and mostly alternating between B and E, which is just like very bedrock, rudimentary, one, five, one type of rock and roll. I think that, that that goes into what you all were saying about, you know, the the music sort of being a counterpoint to a much more challenging lyrical content. So so that's, that's what I had musically. Other than that, there's that like horn, the horn, again, getting sort of towards the climax of the, or I can't stand it when the banging stops. That sounds like a horn to me. This horn flourished there. And like Sean said, the use of silence in the song is pretty... Remarkable, But I don't know that there's a lot else really. The only other musical observation I had was around Craig's vocal delivery, which is, I think, another, especially the way he kicks off this song. I think it's a step in the, the Bruce Springsteen direction in terms of the way his voice sounds. It's still shouty but there's a little bit more of that I don't know what Bruce is doing it's like Bruce Springsteen it almost sounds like you're supposed to sing from the diaphragm you know and it sort of sounds like Bruce Springsteen is like singing from just the top of his chest or something and he's just taking like huge breaths to compensate or something like that so the air is like forcing its way out of Bruce Springsteen's lungs and I think maybe that's partly where Craig Finn has some affinity for him because he's also just like a very forces the air out of himself when he's shouting or singing. But increasingly, the more I listen to that opening singing sound sounds like Bruce Springsteen, maybe like one of the early, more deliberate moves in that direction in terms of Craig's delivery. There's something a little more Springsteen-y about this maybe even lyrically too. these sort of star-crossed lovers type of thing i love jumping this is a good one to pogo to so it's a good musically that's my main musical analysis (laughs) is probably that you can just jump up and down at a show to this like really and have a lot of fun
2: well his voice there's a pronounced holly to the beginning where he's got you can hear it in his throat and it seems there's a little bit more swagger in the vocal. He is singing, but it's still in the it's still not gonna fool anybody for Adele or something, right? It's still very much Craig Finn. And so yeah, I, I like that. And then I you were talking about the horns. That there's the bridge where they, you know, the guitars really are driving the bus. And that's I think also where that then they go to the bridge and you can kind of hear the piano pounding away. I think I could have misheard them because there's also an organ sound in there. And then they sort of build back. You can sort of see a marching band playing this, right? You could see a marching band reassembling themselves on the field during the bridge as the horns start to play and emerge. And that's where to Mike's point about, you know, the American pie parallel and the, you, there's going to be another song in this album where there's that feeling of like fun time, low stakes, which is ironic given everything Sean has especially raised about the lyrics. But that's, that's how it feels the same way that, again, most people are DJs we talked about as being sort of a party song. Like just musically, this is fun. And it's, it's doing a lot lyrically with trying to connect to grew up in denial, went to school in Massachusetts, is pulling on the hostile mass chord, dig those awkward silences, goes to Hornets Hornets. Black and Tans and Sharks, we've already mentioned, like they're tugging at a lot of different strings that, sorry, I didn't mean to get here, but that (laughs) attach and tie it all together. (laughs) And so what the song's doing, that's part of the story.
1: Both of you, referencing how Craig starts the song, both lyrically and musically, got me thinking about a quote. And this is why, I mean, this is one of the many reasons why I think Craig Finn is a great songwriter. But I once read an interview with Paul Simon talking about songwriting. And he said that one of the things he tries to do when he writes a song is he tries to start the song with a tangible image, like something you can see in your mind's eye. One of my favorite Paul Simon songs, Something So Right. Springsteen does this a lot, too, right? He starts off with a you know something... Something you can you can see, hear, or or feel or touch. And Craig Finn has obviously learned that lesson because he starts off a lot of his songs with a tangible image. You know, and again, as abstract as the song is going to get, in ways that it talks about philosophical outlook, and this song ends up talking about religious rituals, Catholic rituals, drug rituals, but it starts off with this tangible image. Well, Holly wears a string around her finger, and I think that's just great. Songwriting craftsmanship, right there. That he starts off like other great songwriters with a tangible image. So I just wanted to add that too, because both of your comments got me thinking about that as well.
3: Well, I just think it's a lot. I'm going to come back to. I sort of said this already, but it's a lot heavier of a song than I sort of realized before. I think that's maybe one of the sort of cool shifts that takes place with this refrain that I keep coming back to. There are strings attached to every single lover. On the surface, that sort of sounds like a kind of thought that I and certain type of single guy in their like 20s would have sort of been like, man, you can't like just you can't just like have lovers and have it be easy. You know, like there's always more to it than that. And what a drag that is. And that's how I heard that lyric for a long time. You know, like you're always going to form emotional attachments no, or something is going to sort of it's never that easy. And I think that's true. That's what he means here, but it's sort of a banal observation. That's a way into something that's a lot more specific to this world and a lot more rich and, and scary, which is that in many cases, the strings that are attached to the lover, they don't connect. And in the case of someone like Holly, it's a string that carries all these other baggage and and personal experience with it that's like deep and scary and and so I think that's interesting that it it I've listened to this song hundreds of times, and I sort of stayed in that sort of more surface level mode of experiencing it until we talked about it now, and I think that it's just a it's a cool multivalent double meaning type of thing going on there that I'm still trying to sort of wrap my head around as I talk.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's the more I think about that, that line. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that you keep bringing it up. The more I think about that, this is so characteristically Holly's attitude that, you know, again, and we, and we talked about this in the, in previous podcast this season, how the narrative focus on Holly talks about how she falls in love with everything. She's connected to everything. And she, she wants to connect to everything. She wants to, you know, she falls in love with the scene. She falls in love with the music. She falls in love. With everything, and this is just another. These images are sort of emblematic of Holly's attitude. That you know, unlike some people who can untie the strings, or for whom there's no connection, Holly's connected to to everyone. Right? She's connected to everyone she's been with. We we get the sense that it's too overwhelming, which is why she ventures down to this camp. Which is why she goes through this drug induced baptism to sort of like to put some distance between her and her emotions and and her desire for connection which are just always just below the surface for her that's another way I weird way I've I've read that
2: yeah the the sort of irresponsibility that holly embodies i guess the idea of even just her usage of holly and the cross could probably be its own essay cuz she on cattle and the creeping things she stole a cross from a on her subway on the way to, to the city. Not sure what she does on a little hood rat friend. I'm trying to little hood Red friend no cross. She, 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 she she's
1: she has got she's got religious imagery etched into her own skin there.
0: Right. She
2: goes a little bit nudges a little bit higher on the chart there. And then here, wearing a cross to ward him off is just sort of to go back to our first episode of the season. They're still not getting it and still not getting what the symbols are just symbols and they take them as symbols and they say, all right, I've got the cross. Look out, like stay off and not quite getting in. So that may be what you're suggesting is her unwillingness to take on the at this stage in the album, the burden of self-reflection and self-introspection and understanding and self work as we call it now it all looks the same to her baptism and the drug scene and the camps by the river is just as good as the baptism in the river jordan and all that stuff right right and you already made this point about the river. you made the point about the parallels between the wasteland with the river but the mississippi river comes up in little hood rat friend as sort of an aside and it becomes, the the Mississippi becomes a character in both this album or a key setting, maybe I should not exaggerate, in this album and it'll show up time and again in the whole city going forward and the Mississippi River is indeed a river as uh, <laughs> we were chatting about <laughs> earlier and it's such a, I just you know, as a geography nerd, as listeners may recall from last season, like that's an opening of a big theme here of the connection, a big part of Minneapolis and a big connection to their surroundings and to all the things that a river can be. It could, you know, it can be the lifeblood of a city, but it also can be a staging ground for some shady things. And in little hood rat friend, it's played more for, we talked about the irony of the narrator protesting too much, but there's also the, drinking under the railroad bridge, and that was sort of triumphant. But the beginning of the night, something might go well, and by the end of the night, you may be by the nitrous tanks and dunking your head in the water with sort of a gnarly crowd.
1: Right, right. I I love your mentioning of the river as becoming a character because I think I completely agree it's going to become a character on this album, as we are going to see in a couple songs. But also because, I mean, you know, if you delve deep into symbology and mythic symbology and archetypes, Jungian archetypes, and how the human mind processes these things. Rivers are just huge in literature, in 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 the Bible, in mythos, in I mean, there's they're just tremendous and huge. And I don't think I I don't this is another reason why I think Craig Fenn is just so gifted. I think he intuitively understands that he's tapping into something much deeper consciously and subconsciously by making the river so you know the mississippi river such an important part of his milieu i mean let's face it, it it as you as
0: we both know it, it pops up everywhere so um yeah i, just, I, I love that so mike yeah <laughs> it's great it's better than i thought i love daniel's point about
3: the sort of abuse of the imagery a sort of Applying symbols to your own selfish utilitarian purposes to alternate purposes than what their full intention and what their pure use is. I think that was really well made. Uh, I have nothing to add on Rivers. Definitely super important. I think
1: we've reached that point in the podcast where we start sharing our golden nuggets. Do we do we have golden nuggets to share? Uh, uh, Dan, do you have any?
2: I've got a few. Yeah. Theaters. Theaters is an important image for Craig, an important setting. Who knows what that could mean, but. Uh... Oh, I think we know. <laughs> well,
3: <laughs> <laughs> they're drowning out the movie with their lip smacking. You know. What? There's lip yeah. smacking
2: going on? There's
3: all <laughs> kinds of smacking going on that's back there. A, Lips is just the beginning, my that's friend. That's where
2: the question mark was. That was where the question how far does the smacking go? But the uh, yeah. The <laughs> smacking camp. <laughs> so theaters go back to the swish, and it's just uh it's something that here as we record in early 2021, who knows whether movie theaters will be the same. Yeah, right. After right. COVID, but that's something that comes to mind. The, I, like to party on the bus, I, I didn't know that was the line until today. I always thought that was on the Clever Bus. I always thought that was a throwback oh. to Clever Kids. On the Clever Instead, Bus. Hi, I love to party on the Clever Bus. <laughs> I just, <laughs> to me, that's a better line. Personally, I would. Craig, feel free to like update.
3: I like re- to party on the clever bus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and who would not I mean, come on. <laughs> we all like to... Well. Other buses, not <laughs> no, not so good. Not, Cle- not so clever. Not so clever.
2: The last... I don't have any musical nuggets, but the last nugget I have is that I'm a very busy man, man. It's just
0: perfect. Like, just a yeah. great line. Cool, M- Michael. Your golden nuggets. Uh, yeah, black and tans. I was a
3: bartender briefly, and you make a black and tan by taking the tan part and pouring it, and then wait, pour wait, Guinness what is the on tan? top. What is, what,
1: what is the tan part? <laughs> you know the the tan part. You reach back behind the top shelf, and you get the tan part.
3: It's an ale. I forget classically what it's whatever the Guinness. Ale is. Um, I attended bar in Tacoma, Washington, and so people would usually have black and tans with Manny's pale ale on the bottom, which is like a local sort of micro brew. But in any case, that's what the tan part is—some kind of beer. And you can do it. Actually, I think it quickly. My favorite thing to do was a black and blue with a blue moon. I just thought that was like a clever little twist. So you make it the way you make a black and tan is you pour, you know, half a pint of the tan part, which is the beer. And then you use a spoon or some good bartenders can kind of position the cup. And it's because of Guinness's lighter density that it floats on top in suspension on top of a um, beer right there. There's a crooked spoon you can use to sort of cushion the fall of the Guinness so it doesn't mix together in the middle. And that's how I would do it because it's sort of faster and easier. And like I didn't care about like being a fancy bartender. I worked a lot of weeknights shifts late, late. We had to close at like one or two, even if there was no one there. And one night, a regular of mine comes in and he's already like, like really drunk. And he, he orders a black and tan. I pour the tan part, the, the mayonnaise. And then I go over to the Guinness and he's like, no, no, no. I don't want it with Guinness. I want it with a real stout. And he's pointing to like a, another, like a black butte Porter, some, something else like that. And, and I go, I don't think you can make it with that. And he's like, no, 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 no I'll go do it. And so then I like, I try like, and I, I use like a gallon of beer trying to like appease <laughs> this dude. I go with the spoonies He's like, you're not a real bartender. Bartenders don't use spoons when they make black and tans and all this stuff. And then eventually I just like put like four of the failed black and tans on the bar and just like let him <laughs> go
1: to town. On it. And then he left,
3: <laughs> left. He was a nice guy ordinarily, but if he had a few, he would be a little
1: bit. Uh-uh. Put a few drinks Trust, in him and then he turned into an asshole. He was a little bit
3: crusty. Yeah. So that's my black and tan nugget. And then I also had high like to party on the problem blocks, which I managed to decipher correctly on my list. And I just love that there's and I think this is what brought me into more of like a lighter frame around about the song. But it's like I love a character who this is the first time you're meeting the person and they go, "Ha!" Very first thing, (laughs) hi. I like to party on the problem blocks. Like a person that no, I like want to hang out with a person like who's who is for that bold in asserting themselves and then introduces themselves as saying that they like to party in dangerous places is like it just gets so much done so quickly. Like this person is a wild but like charismatic and appealing and, and doesn't give a shit type of person. Yeah. That was inspired me in all the wrong ways when I was younger.
1: You, the, the, you're the way that you sort of like talked about that line reminds me of that love. What I, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's most people are DJs. Maybe if I'm wrong. Hi, hi, my name is Corey. I like hardcore. That's why they call me hard Corey. Like mess, Yeah. It. Yeah, uh, yeah, hostile mass. Yeah, uh, someone just right on the block saying that, but you you would like that person immediately. Yeah, I never got to that point
3: where if I was meeting someone for the first time, I would just go hi. But I like I, it's so good. Like it probably works. Hi. I just I love the way he throws that work. Great delivery. Great character development.
2: To my defense, that is why I thought it was the clever bus is because I had the same. I was connecting those. And if somebody is going to say, well, yeah, it's, it's Gideon in both songs or whatever. And, okay. But right.
1: yeah, these clever kids are killing me. My golden nugget has to do with the lines in which.
0: Saw it in party pit.
3: Yes, you're shaky, but still trying to shake it. That
1: going forward, the song Party Pit, which is on, is it on Boys and Girls or is it yeah. on uh, a yeah, yeah, Boys and Girls. That's one of my favorite songs. I love that song. And of course, we all love that song because we all get to sing, going to walk around and drink some more at every live show they play it at. Um, but I love how the party pit makes a, a, an appearance here, even though I wasn't familiar with it until much later. And you know, reference it later. But again, the, even the lines sort of echo each other. I saw her at the party pit. Yeah, she was still tra- shaky, but still trying to shake it. And then Opening lines of the opening was a party, but I guess I met her at the party, but she said those kids she's with for selling it, not in content, but in sort of like meter, they, they mirror and echo each other. And yeah, I mean, it's just, this is just I, I've exhibit A and B, C, D, E, and F of how great people in sci-fi communities and in screenwriting communities and in fandoms everywhere talk about world building. I think Craig Finn is one of the most gifted world builders in popular culture right now. I mean, it's almost as if he's a showrunner and he knows exactly how every single piece fits together. And, you know, at, at Dan Harmon, uh, you know, six six seasons of, of community levels, nothing is wasted. You know, that Fat Neil is going to make an appearance in subsequent and, and reference stuff that Fat Neil said in season one or season two, right? That's just, I just, I, that's why I admire this guy so much. He's just, when it comes to world building, he belongs up there with some of the best showrunners and, and sci-fi writers and other world builders out there. He's it's just, it's just, he's amazing. He's just stunning.
0: So
2: it, it reminded me, especially listening back to our conversation on Cat on the Creeping Things, reminds me of what everybody talks about. I actually haven't seen the movie, but I've read the story. It's based on Rashomon and the whole idea of taking the same, same scene And refracting it through three different viewpoints and slowly you piece. And yeah, that's, he seems to just be, at least for the first four albums, right? He's really chipping away at the same things and trying to better understand the story there from a different lens. I mean, there's, I I can't think of novels that are like that, but Marilyn Marilyn Robinson maybe does it with
1: Gilead. Uh, and, and, and House is it house? She is she she not did house, else, but yeah.
2: house housekeeping, I think, is separate, and, and that's can, actually the only one I've read. But the other thing I'll say, and I'm my tongue is in cheek here, but I remember reading taking a class in high school on the New Testament, having mm-hmm. no occasion to study it before. And I found just when you brought up science fiction and world building and so forth. I found when they did like the whole there's a verse, I don't know if it's in Mark or Matthew, but it's one of those they think, I think. Mean, it might be Luke, who knows? The uh, where they like tie back Joseph to David. I was like, come on, that's that's retconning. That's essentially what my like <laughs> <laughs> like they're just they're just like, oh yeah, this oh yeah, he's what okay. right, you, you wanna talk about world
3: building. How about <laughs> Moses? <laughs>
1: <laughs> huh? <laughs>
3: That's the world builder.
2: <laughs> no one did a pretty decent job building.
1: Well, I think that we've exhausted all the possibilities of banging camp here. There are none left. So, anyone out there trying? Try, no, you've, we've we've covered it all. We've we did it all. So, please don't try to come at us with some other reading of banging camp that we haven't already articulated or anticipated. So, just give it up right now. So, I think that. The, yeah, that brings us to a close. Any, any last truncated, pithy final thoughts?
3: What are your experiences having sex in camps? Summer camps, riverside <laughs> camps, tent cities? <laughs>
0: Homeless that, embankments. That would
1: that would be a whole podcast. we Would have to. Well, I'm understand. asking the listener, not
3: you, Sean. I'm asking the listeners okay. to share theirs, <laughs> and then we'll read them on the next episode. But that's
1: that's a a wise. That'll get them involved. Send I in think, your Jeff.
3: send in your best camp slash banging experiences.
1: We're on Twitter. Cool. Mail,
2: mail at shortmanstudios.com. You can. The the lines are open.
1: Lines are open. Give us a call. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We'll see you next week with episode five, which is shit. What why why am I blanking on oh, the don't No. Title? I don't know what it is. Charlemagne. Char- Charlemagne, that's right. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk about that song next week.
2: Thank you for listening to a positive jam, as always. All song rights belong to the artists, also as always. We have a special guest joining us for next week's episode. So stay tuned for Charlemagne and Sweatpants. If you ever want to join an episode or want us to cover anything or just want to get in touch, shoot us a note on Twitter, at Daniel Shortman, at M. Brooks Taylor, at Sean Westfall, or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. If you've made it this far, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will make you feel better and us too. See you next week for a song that I've long held is the weakest on the album. Can the gang change my mind?